Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, and welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 346. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. Wow. And I am pregnant and burping. (laughs) Well, that seems appropriate, actually, uh, for a little behind-the-scenes reality dose, because today's podcast is about the reality of being a working parent and how it doesn't really serve any of us to hide our kids in the workplace. I'm talking about men and women alike if you become a working parent. Uh, my guest today wants to encourage you to, to, to end parenting secrecy in the workplace and how actually this idea of keeping our kids hidden and trying to you know keep that stuff under wraps really does harm to the overall workplace culture that we're trying to advance to make more inclusive of all kinds of people and all kinds of professionals. I'm so excited for you to hear from my guest today. Her name is Emily Oster. You may know her for her best-selling book series that started with Expecting Better, all about taking an economics professor's approach to navigating the onslaught of advice that comes your way the minute you become pregnant, to Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool, To her new book, which launches today, August 3rd, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. Now, she and I could talk about all kinds of elements of being a working parent, but I really wanted to ask her about normalizing just being a parent in the workplace and how our workplaces can adapt, how our, our, our individual choices contribute to an overall workplace culture. That can be a lot better, quite frankly. I think we should expect better when it comes to how our workplaces treat uh, workers with or without children. Now, the past year and a half, this pandemic has certainly lifted the veil on parenting secrecy. And I also ask Emily in this interview what her thoughts are on how the pandemic will have long-term ramifications and how we view ourselves and our colleagues and the idea of being a working parent overall. So buckle up. We've got a lot ahead for you today. So before we dive into my conversation with Emily Oster, let me tell you a little bit about her background. She's a professor of economics at Brown University, my alma mater, and she's got a PhD in economics from Harvard, just up the road. Prior to being at Brown, she was on the faculty at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business, which I've done a ton of work with. Shout out to all my Booth Uh, School of Business alums and pals over there. The Women at Booth program is amazing, totally worth checking out. Oster's academic work focuses on health economics and statistical methods, which has certainly come in handy in the last year. She's interested in understanding why consumers do not always make quote-unquote rational health choices. For instance, why do people not eat a healthy diet or pursue all recommended preventative health behaviors? 
Lots to discuss there, I'm sure. And her work also concerns methods for learning causal effects from observational data. Earlier academic work included studies of HIV in Africa, which was the topic of her 2007 TED Talk, and, of all things, medieval witchcraft. Now... What you might know Emily for is, in addition to her academic work, she has made a serious name for herself in the space around working parents. She's written two books, three as of today, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm, which I've already described and we're going to talk a lot more about. And Oster lives in Providence, Rhode Island, my my old stomping grounds with her husband, who's also an economist, and her two children. Emily, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I am delighted to have you. I have to say, as someone entering the third trimester of my own pregnancy, your books have been of great use to me and my husband as we kind of study up. Uh, and I appreciate your economics professorial approach to all of the advice out there on the market. Well, good. congratulations. Thank you so much. It's an exciting and overwhelming time. So Agreed. having that... Uh, you know, the economics paradigm for decision-making has been very helpful. <laughs> That's awesome. How did you first find yourself becoming this voice for, you know, expecting parents uh, as a Brown professor? And shout out to my alma mater, by the way. You know, how did you go from economics, you know, teaching to being this parenting spokesperson? So I think the short answer is that I got pregnant, um, and so <laughs> I became uh, I became my audience, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that was now my oldest kid is ten, so it was a, a a while ago. But I I found myself with a lot of questions and without necessarily the answers that I wanted for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I ended up spending you know a lot of my first pregnancy basically doing my job in the service of my pregnancy and, or at mm-hmm. least the parts of my job where I read data and think about evidence and think about decision-making and ultimately expecting better, which was the first book really came out of that, um, that experience sort of documenting both what I found when I went into the data, but also, you know, to some extent kind of how I approached it and the book is intended to be, I sometimes say it's like a mix between a memoir and a meta-analysis. Um, mm. And that's, that's kind of the idea. Totally. And I love how in the book you talk about how after doing some research and analysis for your own pregnancy, all your pregnant friends were like, wait, where's that spreadsheet? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, maybe that speaks, I don't know if that speaks to like my friends, um, but you know, it seems like it's, it seems like it works for a broader set of people than I might've expected. I was going to say, yeah, it's not just for economics nerds. I think you've made it clear that lots of people, uh, who bought your books now, uh, have found them very valuable, myself included. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to read about parenting from an economics perspective. So for listeners who haven't um, checked out Crib Sheet or Expecting Better Yet or your forthcoming book, The Family Firm, which we're going to talk about, uh, it does provide a different take uh, compared to some of the, I don't want to say like, shame and blame parenting advice that you'll find out there, but the generalizations and blanket advice that's so often um, tossed out there. Your approach seems more about mis- uh, risk rather mitigation. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's kind of more about understanding why we make the um, 
why why some of these recommendations are what they are or understanding mm-hmm. the the logic behind them because i think part of what makes it hard to make decisions is if people say the recommendation is blah and you don't understand why then in particular if somebody else says something different right, right. if you get then a second different recommendation it's like well i didn't understand why i had the first one and now i don't understand why you disagree and i think that's a kind of by helping people see the data, the logic, the strength behind what we're telling them to do in pregnancy and parenting, it makes it easier for them to understand these restrictions. And then of course, to make whatever choices are appropriate for their particular risk tolerance, preference, whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good way of putting it. And it's, I love how your experience over the past decade is such a good example uh, of, you know, pursuing, the kind of solutions that you need that you turns out a lot of people need and then it becoming a big part of your career. So uh, kudos to you on all of your successes. And it sounds like this last year in particular was a year to really dive into the data around risk mitigation. So we're going to talk more about that as well. Um, but I highly recommend for folks who want to keep up with you on you know, how the coronavirus intersects with parenting decision-making to check out your parent data um, newsletter, which we'll link to in today's show notes as well. So I wanted to ask you on the podcast today, because we've talked a lot here at Bossed Up um, about crafting your career with intentionality. And as I've been navigating pregnancy myself, we've talked a lot about motherhood and career advancement. And we know that the working, the workforce overall, the workplaces that many of us find ourselves in, were not designed with parents and much less mothers in mind. Um, or at least were designed to pretend like no one has parenting obligations that pull them away from, from the workplace. 2020 certainly lifted that veil, uh, that pretend uh, culture in many ways. But back in 2019, you wrote a really interesting piece in The Atlantic called End the Plague of Secret Parenting. What is secret parenting and why is it so harmful? So secret parenting is when you don't tell anybody at your job that you are a parent uh, and where you uh, make that part of your identity just like completely um, subsumed, secret, silent. Um, And, you know, to the point where I talk a little bit in in that in that piece about, you know, people who. when they need to take their kid needed to take their kid to the doctor because they were sick, would just lie and say, well, I'm sick. You know, I I can't come in today because I'm sick rather than saying, you know, this is a part of my life and my kid is sick and I need to, um, I I can't come in today because they're sick. Um, and, and so I think, you know, that's kind of the idea of secret parenting and the question of like, Mm -hmm. why is that problematic? Um, I think it is because we have tried to transition our workplaces into places that can be welcoming to a more diverse uh, set of of people on a, on a variety of dimensions. Um, and some people have children, uh, and children are constraining in a particular set of ways. And if we want people to be able to productively combine the work part of their life with the parenting part of their life, we need to be looking for solutions. But if everyone is lying and saying that they don't have children, then it's going to be very difficult to work through those solutions. And so I particularly talk about the need for people at the at the top, the sort of leaders in whatever firm it is, 
to to not be secretive about their parenting because if they are, they are not secretive, it will generate it's more likely to generate a culture in which we can be more open, in which everyone can be more open about this, in which we can try to find you know ways to make these things meld um, more easily for families. Yeah. And so it sort of kind of reminds me of how each of us contributes to workplace culture and broader societal culture, um, as well as the opposite, right? Like broader societal culture constrains our choices. So to be clear, you're not saying like we any of us are doing this by choice. This is really an adaptation, a reaction to, I think, a, a righteous amount of fear, an understandable amount of fear that working parents experience and women in particular around being seen as anything less than 100% committed to their jobs, right? No, exactly. And I think, you know, part of this for for me, um, you know, there's like a, of course, as you might imagine, like a personal component of, of this. Yeah. And, you know, I remember when my, um, when my first child was born that I was very conscious about wanting to come back. I mean, I'm a professor, but like wanting to come back into the office and have people like see me very mm. early. And I think I was back at the office, you know, for a day, like when my daughter was like two or three weeks old, um, just, you know, not like back full time, but like sort of coming in to have people be like, okay, like I've seen that this is a person who's here. And then I, I didn't want, to have the impression that, okay, now I'm just like somebody's mom and I'm, I'm not gonna, um, you know, I'm not gonna be, be at work. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that there's a sort of, in, at least in some kind of workplace environments, a sense in which we need to be, I don't know, like 150% into work right. yeah. and that any, any suggestion that you might also be 150% into your kids, um, or that you could combine those, those two things, um, is just, um, we makes us anxious. Yeah. And it, it speaks to the identity crisis that so many people have, you know, upon becoming a parent for the first time, which is, can I be just a mom or can I be a mom and a boss, right? Like, can those identities peacefully coexist? Cause we don't see too many models, uh, that have normalized that. And I, I think in particular, yeah. I mean, I know that there's not a ton of data that you cite in that particular Atlantic piece, but I, I, I think overall um, there's been a healthy body of research showing that women face penalties related to motherhood in the workplace to a much greater extent than fathers do uh, because of longstanding, outdated assumptions of, you know, when a woman becomes a parent, she becomes less committed to her job. And when a man becomes a parent, he becomes more committed to being a breadwinner even though the data, you know, doesn't really show that in our breadwinning family household units, uh, which are even all of that research is very heteronormative. So, you know, is there reason to be fearful and should we should we as individuals be sort of leading the charge or do you want to see more workplaces leading that kind of family friendly policymaking or is it a both? I think it's kind of both. I mean, I think that it's very hard to ask junior people to spearhead this kind of stuff. Um, And, you know, I think that that, um, you know, when when it's difficult to say, you know, if you're the most junior person on the team, that somehow you should be the one who's like, oh, let me tell you about like melding my personal life with my professional life. Right. Um, You know, it's an unusual person who's going to want to going to want to do that. I don't think we can put that on those um, on, you know, on those, those groups, I think there's a responsibility of, of workplaces to, um, you know, think about 
practical solutions, practical ways they can try to make this this melding easier. But I also think it's a real responsibility on people at the you know at the top, people at the, who are more senior who have come through this in whatever way to mm. model this behavior. If we you know if you think that's an important component of the culture, you you need to model it yourself and and not just women. Uh, It's not enough for just like the two women who are, you know, in the kind of C-suite space to to say, oh, by the way, I had, you know, I had kids. It actually also needs to be the the men. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's that's important. What does that look like? You describe some some steps that you've taken to be unapologetically not so secret about being a parent in the workplace. But if we had to say, here's the call to action for women and men in mid to senior level positions who are like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm down. What does that look like? Yeah. So I think, you know, one thing is that's sort of very practical that I, I talk a lot about is recognizing the, um, the kind of, uh, times during the day that are prioritized for parenting. And so, Mm. um, you know, there's a kind of, for many people with, with small kids, there's sort of a window like between 5 PM and 8 PM or something when they're kind of home from school and you might want to have dinner with them. And then, they go to bed and and if you work until eight, you kind of miss that whole that whole window. And so yeah. I think that there's a sense in which, you know, for many people, maybe they would be willing to work after eight. That, you know, I'm I'm actually fine working after my kids are in bed, but I, I right. want that time in in the day. And so I try to be very unapologetic about that. And when people ask me to do things, you know, at, at five o'clock, I'll often say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, you know, I, I don't do things in that time of the day. Um, and I'll say and that not, publicly. not because you have an appointment, right? No, it's like, I, that's because I have, with, I have an appointment. It's with my children. Um, right. Right. <laughs> like, but I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, I, I sort of say that as a joke, but I think that's exactly what it is, which is like, that is an important, like, it's not yeah. that like, it's because I, I think if you told people, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I have another call. Like, all right. Um, you know, you like, you have another call, but somehow if we say, well, I can't do that because like, that's the time that like, I'm, I like hanging with my kids. Uh, right. it's like, well, that's, you know, that, but that is an appointment. Like that's an appointment. It's an and appointment that's the radical small- part of this, right? Yeah. Like that's really key is the <laughs> not pretending to be doing something else. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, like so- sometimes I have tried to be, I think there's a, there's a world of being very, just very visible about that, that, mm. um, you know, is, is striking to people. So actually this is like sort of post having written this, but at some point during the pandemic, I was, I was doing something with a lot of very, very senior people at my job. And for various reasons, I was kind of the most, I was actually in that case, even though I am myself somewhat old, was the most junior person on this particular team. Mm. Um, but the, and the meetings, like kind of the only time we could do the meetings was in this window of like 515 to 545 or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, the, so the person who was running it said to me, I'm really sorry. I know that this is your time with your kids. Like, this is the only, you know, this is the only time we can, we can do, um, you know, is it okay? And I said, you know, it's, it's okay. But, uh, but then what I did was I was always in my kitchen and some fraction of the time I was cooking dinner. And I was yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm really sorry. This is the time I have for this and I can be on this call and I can do this, but I'm, but I'm going to need to be sort of like, you're going to need to, to sort of adapt to this a little bit. Also, and I think that there was a, um, you know, but that was a privilege that I had for that I, that I was given for being kind of where I am career wise in a space where even though I was the most junior person on that team, like I am a tenured, you know, chair professor, 
Like, and <laughs> right. it doesn't, you know, even if they don't like that I'm cooking on the thing, like nothing they can do about that. Right, um, right. So, so, I mean, we're talking about power and privilege here and hierarchy in some ways, yeah, for sure. But we're also but like, talking about modeling that because then when the junior faculty want right. to do something like that, they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a maybe making it a little bit easier for them that the yeah. people are saying, oh, you know, actually like, it, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Like you could be a, like, it would be okay for the junior faculty to do that. They wouldn't necessarily mean that they aren't people who are serious about their jobs. Right. And that's using power, privilege, and hierarchy to model something different and make the path a little bit easier, hopefully, for folks who are looking up to you and saying, this is what it looks like to be a professional. This is what it looks like to be, you know, a tenured professor. So I I think that's a really good- I don't boss anybody. Yeah, I was going to say a boss, but yeah. (laughs) Same same concept. Yeah. So let's talk about the pandemic a little bit because- I like this call to action, and I want to just underscore how important it is that men get on board as well. We want to see men with pictures of kids in the office and all of those, like, evidence that they care about their children, too, unabashedly. Uh, But this pandemic over the past year plus now has really lifted the veil of secrecy around working parents in such a way that, uh, you know, when kids were home from school for so many months and so many parents just found themselves stuck between working and homeschooling all of a sudden, uh, you know, we had to reconcile with that reality. Is that a net positive or negative? And what do you see coming out of this era um, that might give you some hope about our ability to adapt as a workforce. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think um, there are sort of positives and negatives to the to the work piece of this. So, you know, I think on the one hand, on the on the sort of quite negative side, I think the, we lost a lot of women in the workforce. Um, yeah, who were you know in in a position where it was basically untenable to keep working and also supervise a kind of you know eighteen months of homeschooling. Um, yeah. So. I think that that's very unfortunate and how we are going to sort of recover from that or find a way to recover from that. Um, those changes in labor market, I think are, that's, that's a, that's a challenge. Um, the, um, you know, on the, on the positive side, I think that we, we did, we were sort of forced our parenting into the, into the public and everybody knows a lot more about everybody else's families now. Um, right. <laughs> Or for worse. Um, but I think it did, you know, it did sort of make it impossible not to, not to sort of surface this. I think the more practical, like long-term thing is we actually figured out ways to make more remote work happen. And so to yeah. the extent that some of these, some of these issues that we raise are things where it's like, well, you got to be in the office from five to eight, because that's where work happens. Right. It's much harder to see that when it's like, well, how, how did work not happen? Like, I haven't been in the office for 18 months. Like, what, you yeah. know, what was that? And so I think then to be able to sort of have an opportunity to reset and say, actually, you know, I, um, I, you know, I'd like my work structure to be this way. I would like, you know, I'd like to be remote working one day a week, or I'd like to be, you know, like home from five to eight and remote working from eight to 10 or whatever it is, I think it would just be much harder in a lot of places to push on this idea of FaceTime as kind of mm. like per se important to the extent that that is relevant for, you know, thinking about uh, some of the, you know, issues that, that women or parents in general sort of face with, with work. Um, I think there's a 
there's an opportunity there to, to reset some of our expectations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people voting with their feet is going to be a big part of this, meaning, you know, we're starting to see the reentry plans roll out for companies across the globe saying, here's how we're adapting to make flexible workplaces possible for the long term. And, and lots of places are saying, here's how we're not. Here's how we're going back to how things were. And I think we've seen data, some polling showing that some large majority of work workers say they'll quit if forced back into the office full time. But, you know, we're not going to know until the time is upon us. Uh, and who knows exactly when that will be given everything that's still going on with this ongoing global health crisis. But yeah, and I think, we you know, fi- I mean, I think we figured out I, I my sense is that for in, in a lot of fields, people have figured out what can be done remotely and what cannot. And, you know, I know in my own, in my own sort of workspace, there are, there are a bunch of things that I would say like, boy, I can't believe we were doing that in person before. (laughs) That's like, that's a total waste of like faculty meetings. I I really hope we keep those on Zoom. Um, (laughs) But then there are some things like, you know, advising my students where it's very clear that it's much worse on, on Zoom. And so, you know, there are pieces of my job where I think, okay, I'm really eager to get back to teaching in person and to, you know seeing my, my students in person and then other pieces where, you know, where some of the travel and so on, where I think like, I didn't need to do that and I won't do it in the future. And so my guess is everyone will have a version of that. Exactly. Yeah. I'm curious to hear, to see how long the memory is from this kind of a moment, you know, what do you want to see more employers doing to normalize being a working parent moving forward? You know, I mean, I think that, um, that some of it is very subtle is sort of like now you know about people's families because you saw them on the zoom uh you can ask how they are and i think i mean that's like even just the act of saying like hey how are your kids like is is a way of saying like that doesn't have to be something that you keep a secret we all know you have kids we saw them on the zoom and, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. how, how are they doing? Um, and so I think that things like that, even the sort of small pieces of that mm. um, are relevant. And, you know, on top of kind of thinking about how we can make um, how we can make sort of the kind of flexibility that generates, you know, that makes it possible. I will say, I think that, you know, for the next year, potentially, there are going to be very real constraints that parents face around schooling disruptions still, right? even though right. I think we're all hoping that school will be like full in person. I think that most districts are heading there and, and et cetera, et cetera. We should still expect this is going to be more interrupted than it was in the past. It's just the right. way it is. And I think that that is something that firms and parents are going to need to, to kind of come, come to terms with. It's like an ex- Total. exaggerated version of this. Like my kid is sick, but now like they're, they're in like quarantine for 10 days. Right. My kid's school is sick. Right. My kid's yeah. school is sick. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, uh, I've seen a lot more workplaces offer emergency childcare coverage in the pandemic. Um, and of course, America being an exception to not having paid parental leave policies in place, hopefully is a conversation that we can move down the road uh, move forward on down the road, public policy wise. That was my jam at Brown, by the way. I was a poli sci major. <laughs> nice poli sci. I love the poli sci guys. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think there's a role for individuals to play that you really mapped out very clearly here. There's certainly a role for companies and private entities to play and government. So I, I'm optimistic, but I think you're right in that 
the individual managers and leaders have power, have the opportunity to model normalizing that that parent, uh, the work parent kind of lifestyle, and that we need to see, we need to do that. Hopefully, that's something I'll keep in mind in the next yeah. year as a soon-to-be parent entrepreneur. Soon-to-be uh, parent boss. Parent boss. Yeah, soon-to-be parent boss. Yeah, I love it. So I do want to ask you about your forthcoming book, The Family Firm, out August 3rd. It's a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. How does this relate to crib sheet and expecting better. So it's the it's the third uh, in in the sequence and um, and you know the sort of crib sheet is really about kind of early life sort of through toddlerhood. This is more of the early school year um, time frame. Uh, and the, I would say this book really has kind of two big pieces. So like the earlier books, there's a bunch of stuff on data. In this case, it's about school and extracurriculars and screen time and sleep and nutrition and some of the the big sort of questions that come up in that era of life. But actually a big chunk of the book, the whole sort of first part of it is about um, decision-making and basically trying to, to have more structured, more deliberate family decision-making around what mm-hmm. do you want your schedules to look like? Uh, how do you want your day to go? Uh, how do you think about making big decisions? Like what school should my kid go to? Or should I hold them back a year before sending them to kindergarten? And giving people uh, tools to to make those decisions better, you know, taking some lessons basically from from firms, which is hence hence the name. Um, but there's a little bit of a pitch of like in this era of early school years, there's so much logistics. The decisions are unexpected. They're not yeah. always the same decisions everyone's got. You need a way to decide. You need a way to to make your life run more smoothly, and that that business can tell us some things about that. I love that. How interesting. It's kind of like bringing the business school (laughs) philosophy to your home environment, which my husband, who is a project manager in his own right, professionally, he and I are really (laughs) taking a project management approach to just getting organized ahead of time. And it's funny, I had to grab crib sheet off of his nightstand uh, because he's like, I'm going to read along with each chapter as it relates directly to what we're doing. Um, I, of course, like, I'm an early bird, so I read I read these books. You read like through. Now again. you know how to potty train. You know how to yeah, train I'm like, wait, I have to revisit them because now I've forgotten. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's not going to come up immediately. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, it, you know, babies do at the end of September, and it's just so funny to, like, think through the logistics of it. In some ways, it feels more tangible and, like, con- like uh, containable as a area to focus our energies around instead of like the big scary unknowns that are also part of parenting. But it's just, it's, it's funny to see two professionals who pride ourselves on being logistics taskmasters come together and start to sketch out a new, a new normal that's headed our way. So I appreciate that approach. I'm excited for the family firm. Yeah, I think it would be, I mean, I think part of the, part of the sort of pitch I would make is although actually most of the data of course is, is kind of this older kid space. I think actually the first part of the book almost could have gone at the front of any of the three, but certainly kind of at the front of crib sheet. Um, Mm. Because I think that there's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of value to, decision-making and structure and being on the same page about family priorities and so on that that kind of does come up even um even early on or or in any of these moments when you make a big transition into being busier or doing a different mix of things or whatever it is i love that and having a common vernacular is so key so i think that's great 
Well, Emily Oster, professor at Brown University. It's so fun to chat with you. You're not the first Brown professor, by the way, that I've had on the pod. I had Barbara Tannenbaum on last year. Oh, I love Barbara Tannenbaum. I know, right? She is awesome. She really is. So it's just so funny to uh, kind of come back to my roots in this way. And I appreciate all that you brought to today's conversation. I'll drop links to all the books and resources, including the Parent Data newsletter that I mentioned in today's show notes. Where should our listeners keep up with you and all the great stuff you produce? So you can find me at Parent Data. That's in probably the the most the most stuff that I put out, but you can find me as Prof. Emily Oster on both Twitter and Instagram if you like those outlets. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for stopping by and I look forward to keeping in touch. Likewise. Thank you. For more details on everything that Emily and I discussed in today's conversation, head to bossedup.org slash episode 346 for links and show notes to get to all of those great resources that we talked about. Once again, that's bossedup.org slash episode 346. And now it's time for this week's Boss Move of the Week. Today, I want to give a shout out to Ash, one of our community members in Scotland, who's an alum of our Hired Job Search Accelerator. She recently had the pleasure uh, and satisfaction of being able to resign from a job where she was clearly undervalued in order to accept a new exciting position with a 35% pay increase, better benefits package, and major long-term growth potential. And as if that's not impressive enough, this is also part of Ash's overall career transition trajectory. So if you're thinking about switching industries, her story is going to be especially relevant and inspiring to you. After 15 years in film and TV production, Ash found herself in her last job uh, in finance because she really was craving more stability and more predictability when it came to work-life balance. Now, she liked her role a lot in vendor and cost management, and she was great at it because her skills as a producer transferred beautifully over. But the only problem in her last job was that her former workplace seemed to view her as an entry-level employee, despite her 15 years of other experience in film and TV. So she really worked with her incredible coach, Jay, in the Higher Job Search Accelerator program to reclaim her story from film to finance and to demonstrate how her entire career's worth of experience made her a valuable employee who is not an entry-level employee, but rather someone with serious experience and value that she could offer her new employer. So she was able to stick this pivot, land a 35% pay increase, get a better benefits package, and land a role with serious long-term growth potential because of how she really owned that story. So congratulations, Ash. We're all so proud of you and so impressed with how you took the lessons of the Higher Job Search Accelerator and really made them work for you. Congratulations. And now, boss, I want to hear from you. What career conundrums are you facing that you want me to unpack on an upcoming episode? Or what boss moves of the week do you want to brag about? Give me a call and leave me a message now at the Bossed Up Podcast hotline, 910-668-BOSS or 2677. And as always, we'll continue this conversation in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook. You can join via bossedup.org. When you sign up for our emails, you'll get invited. 
or you can always join via the link in today's show notes. I really want to hear what you thought about our discussion. What did you think about Emily's take on how leaders can change workplace culture by making conscious choices about lifting the veil around parenting secrecy? And how does that compare between the kind of political change that we need to see, government change that we need to see, organizational change that we need to see? What do you think the long-term impact of this pandemic is going to be on workers of all kinds, with or without kids? I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to hear your pregnancy and or parenting experiences, especially as I start to really come down to the wire here in preparing for that kind of a transition myself. So let's keep the convo going in the Bossed Up Courage community. And in the meantime, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, let's lift as we climb. <laughs> <laughs>